Jody F. Welcome to Homicidal Impulse. Tonight we're going to discuss the life and crimes of Fernando Velasco Coda. If you have your serial killer bingo cards, get them out because we're going to cover a lot of spaces. Our story begins on October 14, 1984 in La Jolla, California, specifically on the 101 freeway. Picture it. A blue van driving erratically has just been pulled over by patrolmen. The driver then jumps out of the car and screams, I'm a very sick man. Kill me. If you don't kill me, I'll kill myself. He then proceeds to shoot himself in the temple with a 22 caliber pistol. When patrolmen look in the back of his van, they find three macabre things. A sack of bloody women's clothing, a wooden coffin, the inside covered with scuff marks where someone tried to kick their way out. And finally, a female corpse, arms tied behind her back, dressed only in socks and panties. The victim is later identified as 21-year-old Kim Dunham, a hardware store clerk. She had disappeared three days earlier. An autopsy will later determine she's been strangled. It just so happened that La Jolla was in the middle of a homicide spurt. A total of five women had been murdered over the last year. And while detectives originally thought none of the crimes were related, now they weren't so sure. The other murdered women were Kelly Ralston, a San Jose University student, age 21, found stabbed in her apartment. Gwendolyn Hoffman, age 57, a housewife, found stuffed in the trunk of her car. She'd been strangled with a hanger. Teresa Linda Sunder, a transient, age 29, found in an abandoned house, beaten to death. And Lori Lee Miller, restaurant manager, age 20. Her body was found in the outskirts of San Jose, and she'd been strangled to death. When detectives went to investigate Coda's apartment, they couldn't help but notice the body of one of these victims, Teresa Sunder, had been found only half a block away from his residence. And another victim, Lori Lee Miller, had lived in the building directly behind Coda. Coda's apartment, located at 405 North 3rd Street, was serial killer central. He had a fake police badge, multiple fake IDs, six pairs of ladies' shoes, and assorted women's clothing. Fittingly, there was a decal on his back door which read, Never mind the dog, beware of owner. A little truth in advertising. Things got even weirder when detectives looked in his closet. Coda had converted it into a torture chamber. There were manacles affixed to the floor, rubber padding to absorb noise, and a peephole drilled out so he could observe his victims. The whole house, incidentally, top to bottom, was pristine. Coda was a neat freak, but even so, evidence technicians were able to detect bloodstains in the torture closet. So who was Fernando Velasco Coda? He was 38 years old, a native of Chihuahua, Mexico, and a Vietnam veteran. Since Coda shot himself before police could question him, there's very little information available about his background. 
We do know he worked as a computer programmer at Aiden Corporation in the microwave division, and he'd previously worked at Beaumont Army Medical Center in Texas. At the Aiden Corporation, Coda was not well liked by his fellow female employees. One of them told the San Bernardino County Sun, and I quote, I felt he was a creep, a weirdo, and a pervert, but I wasn't afraid of him. I think this says a lot about the amount of shit women in the 80s were used to putting up with at work. In those days, if you weren't certain you'd be killed in the break room before close of business, you kept your problems to yourself. Because if you looked weak, you made all women look weak. Coda, you will not be surprised to learn, was a convicted sex offender. In 1975, he showed up at a nurse's house in Texas, claiming he was there to investigate a gas leak. Once she let him inside, he pulled a gun, tied her up, bathed her, made her a cocktail, and raped her. The creepiest aspect of the rape happened a few days later. The victim received a note with her house keys in it. The note said, sorry for the argument we had, still loving you. Remember, this is a stranger rape with a gun, and he sends a note saying sorry for the argument. Coda was a person of interest immediately after the crime because he'd been previously arrested for burglary in the area. The rape victim's identification of Coda was steadfast, so he decided to opt for an insanity defense, the last refuge of the undeniably guilty. According to Coda's psychiatrist, Coda saw himself as a Casanova and believed the encounter was consensual, irrespective of the fact he was holding the victim at gunpoint. This psychiatrist, Dr. Ben Hill Passmore, claimed Coda was suffering from paranoid psychosis, triggered because he had a female supervisor at work, an interesting variation on the popular bitch made me do it defense. As it turns out, the five-man, seven-woman jury weren't buying Coda's excuses. He was convicted of aggravated rape after three and a half hours of deliberation. This was a great relief to his victim, who told the El Paso Times, and I quote, I'd like to see him hanged. There has to be something wrong with the guy who would do that, but that insanity plea really burned me up. He knew what he was doing the whole time. I was so happy to get out of that apartment alive. Although the prosecution requested 50 years, Coda was sentenced to only 20 and ended up serving only eight. The sentencing guidelines of the 1970s were absurdly lenient and due to overcrowding, early parole eligibility was almost guaranteed. Today, we might be outraged to learn Coda served less than half his sentence, but at the time, it was par for the course. Coda had been out of prison barely a year when he got pulled over joyriding with Kim Dunham's corpse. If he had served his full sentence, his five presumed victims would have been spared. The family of one of Coda's presumed victims, Lori Lee Miller, were extremely angry about his lack of supervised release on the Texas rape charge. Lori Miller was the woman who lived in the building directly behind Coda's apartment. 
The day she went missing, she called her boyfriend and said there was a Hispanic man at the door claiming to be a plumber. She said she wasn't going to let him in, but when her boyfriend came home, she was nowhere to be found. Eggs were burning on the stove and the fire alarm was going off. Police believe Lori Lee Miller was held prisoner in CODIS closet during the 10 days she was missing because she'd been dead only 24 hours when found and her legs were freshly shaved. Of course, while she was missing, CODIS showed up at her house asking how the search was going, a classic serial killer maneuver to glean information about the course of the investigation. Coda was supposed to register as a sex offender, but he didn't, so the police had no idea this missing woman lived directly behind a sex offender. California, ironically, was the first state in the union to institute a sex offender registry way back in 1947. If La Jolla law enforcement had known about Coda's proclivities, he would have been an immediate person of interest, and it's possible Lori Lee Miller might have been rescued, and the life of his final victim, Kim Dunham, might have been spared. There is one final sinister detail in the criminal chronicles of Fernando Coda. When detectives searched Coda's apartment, they found a flyer he'd created looking for a roommate. This was odd because he lived in a one-bedroom apartment, so the ad was probably just a ruse to lure victims. Definitely keep that in mind next time you're apartment hunting. Now, I know this is controversial, but every time I read about a homicide, I like to see how I can use the facts of the crime to improve my personal safety. An argument could be made that this is a solipsistic way of shoehorning myself into another family's tragedy, but I feel like the good aspects of this practice outweigh the bad. First of all, by dredging up these old crimes, we're memorializing the victims. According to Judaic tradition, saying the name of the deceased helps keep their memory alive. Furthermore, if the facts of their murders can help other potential victims, rehashing these crimes can play an important role in educating the public about safety. Personally, if I'm heinously murdered, I want every possible detail that might help other people shouted from the rooftops. You can even download the crime scene photos on documentingreality.com, but please put the black bar over my naughty bits because I'm kind of a prude. So on that note, what important life lessons did we learn from the crimes of Fernando Coda? First of all, and this advice is evergreen, steer clear of vans. If I notice a van has parked beside me in a parking lot, I enter the car from the passenger side. Better safe than dead and or sorry. Number two, Never let a strange man into your apartment, even if he claims he's a plumber or a gas technician. If something needs to be fixed, ask your landlord to escort the workman into your apartment. You don't want to get a love note from your rapist days after the crime, apologizing for the argument you had. Finally, and this is imperative, if you're planning to move in with a stranger, check the closets for shackles before you hand over your security deposit. Sexual paraphilia can be hard to spot. You need to do your due diligence or someday the victim waking up in the torture closet might be you.
This has been Homicidal Impulse with Jody F. Don't forget to lock your doors.